This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Welcome to the Carbon Connection Podcast. It's not too late to change the conversation about climate change from doom and gloom to a conversation about possibility. This podcast is a curated selection of episodes that we just had to share with you. The Carbon Connection is about the many dimensions of climate change and the conversations people are having across the globe. It's about hope, community, advocacy, science, and changing our future. Hi, this is Tanya, and I'm a contributor to the Carbon Almanac Network. In this episode of The Carbon Connection, we explore the topic of environmental economics with Dr. Edward Barbier and host of the Biophilic Solution podcast, Monica Olson and Jennifer Walsh. This episode made me much more aware of the costs related to the products we use and the resources that we rely on every day. Dr. Barbier says that in order to move forward and create systemic change, businesses need to do a much better job at describing the costs of the natural resources that we use to make products. Dr. Barbier says that businesses can no longer treat nature as something separate from themselves. He shares that half of the global GDP depends on nature, and that as raw materials become more scarce, businesses need to change their approaches and think about other economic options. This episode expanded my understanding of the complexities of environmental economics, and there is so much more to learn. Hi, I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hey, Monica. Hey, Jennifer. So, Monica, what are we talking about today? Today, we're diving into the green economy. We'll talk about what that means and how economies around the world should start valuing nature and shift to truly sustainable green economic systems. This is such an important topic, and I'm so glad that we're talking about it. The fundamental flaw in many economies around the world is that nature and natural resources are treated like a given, as if they are unlimited and free supply for raw materials and for dumping waste. Being able to reframe nature in economic terms could really help us move the needle in terms of limiting emissions and sustaining a livable planet. Absolutely. So one thing that's really important to us on this podcast is balancing optimism, hope, and new ideas with the reality. We never want to greenwash, but we also don't want to push people away from the conversation without providing some potential solutions. So when we talk about putting a dollar value on nature, it can sound a bit of a bummer because nature has such an intrinsic value. Yet we also live in a real world and we can see that one of the only ways to protect nature might be with the major players, especially in corporations and government, 
is that you can see by devaluing nature, they're really shooting themselves in the foot. Gosh, that is so true. You're absolutely right. So our guest today is Dr. Edward Barbier. Ed is a university distinguished professor in the Department of Economics at Colorado State University, where his main expertise is in environmental and resource economics, as well as international environmental policy. He has served as a consultant and policy analyst for a variety of national, international, and non-governmental agencies, including many UN organizations and the World Bank. His latest book, Economics for a Fragile Planet, offers a blueprint for how global economies might shift to greener, more inclusive models. We really could not have found a better person to talk about these issues. So I'm beyond excited to share this conversation with our listeners. So let's get to our interview with Ed Barbier. Hey, Ed, we're so happy that you're with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Monica, I've been talking yeah. about having you forever. So we're thrilled that you said yes. <laughs> I appreciate it greatly. Yes. And I think we want to just sort of like jump right mm-hmm. in and ask you a little bit about how did you get interested in environmental economics? Well, interestingly enough, I didn't start off thinking about becoming an environmental economist. I actually was interested in development issues, particularly issues concerning how do poor people and poor countries use natural resources to develop. Mm -hmm. So I was very much interested in development economics. And then it became clear to me that natural resources and the environment were fundamental to people's livelihoods, particularly the poor, and developing countries depended so much on exploiting natural resources that I became interested in environment resource economics as my main area. And I've retained that interest with the interest in natural resources and development through my career. And that also extended to, as I said, well, wait a minute, it's not just poorer countries, it's all countries that depend on the environment. Mm -hmm. And the environment is so fundamental to the welfare of everyone. So I started to get interested with other colleagues in how do we make our economies more environmentally sustainable? Mm. Because clearly, even 30, 40 years ago, it became apparent to a number of economists that we were not on the right track. And so that got my interest in green economy issues and the transitions to becoming greener. And that's led to my current book. Well, I think that's really fascinating, too, before I even get started even further, but the fact that you have this like love for economics, but also your discovery of how nature's impacted by the economy. And then that mm-hmm. unraveling and that kind of peeling back the layers of understanding really led you to this whole new world of the green economy. And again, like how long ago that was, it's really, really great. Yes. The first book that I published with my co-authors, David Pearson and Neil Markandra was actually in 1989. It wasn't my first book, but it was my first book on the green economy. It was called A Blueprint for a Green Economy. Mm. And it really did shake some minds a little bit in terms of thinking about sustainability and how we get there. Sadly, we're still not there. So now it's getting more urgent. So that's why the focus of... of yeah. Well, and that's an interesting thing. So your current book is Economics for a Fragile Planet that I think just came out this March, maybe this spring. Correct. And so between 89 and today, 2000. 22. What have you seen in the culture or society of any hopeful changes for solutions? Well, I've seen some hopeful changes. We certainly are debating and talking about making our economies greener and reducing our impacts on climate change. 
But this whole period of time from the 1970s to today, we've seen an acceleration of human impacts on the environment. Mm. You take any indicator you want. And in fact, I show a few in my book, whether it's Mm -hmm. greenhouse gas emissions or whether it's fisheries production and whether it's biodiversity loss and so on, and even pollution, you can't even put plastic pollution on this graph because Mm -hmm. it's been exponential from nothing to suddenly plastic is everywhere in the oceans. So anyway, our human impacts on the environment have accelerated to the point where many earth system scientists and other scientists have said, wait a minute, we are now entering a new era that's been unprecedented called Mm -hmm. the Anthropocene. And what's different now compared to just 50 years ago and certainly 100 years ago is now human impacts on the environment and on nature and the biosphere are so significant that we're disrupting some very important earth system processes and Mm -hmm. ecosystems. And I've seen that in my work because I've worked in various areas of the global environment. Certainly climate change is one of the big environmental risks we're facing right now, but there's also deterioration of our oceans and our coasts. There's rising freshwater scarcity everywhere in the world, particularly in the U.S. West where I live. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there's a loss of biodiversity. Land use change is so significant around the world, particularly in the tropics that we're losing biodiversity, hands over fists. And so these are all huge risks that could push us into either an uncertain future or one that's got catastrophic outcomes for humankind on a regular occurrence. And we want to avoid that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's led us there is a way in which we have designed our economy, our governance, our institutions and our markets so that we've excluded nature from our basic market and policy decisions and business decisions. And what we need to do is rethink how we do markets, governments and institutions so that we embed economy within nature. It's a tall task, but that's what we need to do to slow down these risks that are going to be very troublesome for us in the very near future. Is that because, I mean, what you're seeing right now, what you're saying is, is it because we've gone along, governments and businesses have always underfunded and underpriced nature because it's we need it, but it's always been underfunded, underpriced? That's exactly where we are right now, is mm-hmm. that the consequence of treating nature like it's out there. Mm-hmm. It's an infinite source of raw materials and energy and an infinite sink for all our waste, which is how our economy is structured and has been for thousands of years. But Mm -hmm. at this critical time, it's reached the point where we have overburdened nature. And the key indicators, as you say, in our economy are that we underprice nature. All the good things it does for us aren't taken into account. And we also actually subsidize activities that harm nature. So we actually Mm -hmm. need many of our economic activities to do harm for nature, even though nature does so many things for us. And unfortunately, there needs to be redressing that balance. We need to reduce the environmental harm that our economies and certain activities do to nature. And we, at the same time, need to take into account the good things that nature does for us, whether it's protecting our coasts against storms or whether it's watersheds, recharging water and controlling through rivers and streams and controlling erosion, whether it's biodiversity within habitats that supports everything from pollination of crops to basically controlling 
infectious diseases that could break out like we've seen with COVID. All these Mm -hmm. valuable services that nature does for free. We need to think about these inputs as being just as valuable as capital that we produce within our economy and labor, which we train up and educate and skill because they all work together to provide the goods and services that we want. And that's what I mean about rethinking markets, institutions, and governments. It's a huge task, but it's Mm -hmm. one we have started on. We just need to do it more quickly and urgently. Because I think a lot of what we see is, Monica and I talk about a lot on the podcast, is there's always this focus on governments and the governmental regulations. But do you also see that's a lot about markets? So how these businesses do business should be more focused on the nature economy and how their businesses are going to be very catastrophic if something isn't done to stop what they've been doing, if you will. I agree completely. I mean, this is one of the things that has changed a lot in the last 10, 20 years is that now the recognition, it's not just individuals that are made worse off, but businesses uh, Mm -hmm. depend so much on nature. Studies that have come out recently have shown, including studies by the World Economic Forum, that global business, so many sectors, their supply chain can be traced all the way back to nature. Mm -hmm. And along that supply Mm -hmm. chain from raw materials and water, all of that depends on nature. And then as it goes through the supply chain and gets to the final consumer, all those pathways depend on nature too. And so the estimates are huge, equivalent to about half of global GDP from industry and services depends on nature in some form. Equally, businesses are facing monumental risks themselves. Many Mm -hmm. of the larger companies and corporations want to stay around for a while. And suddenly they realize, well, we're dealing with climate risks. We're dealing with water scarcity. We're dealing even with biodiversity losses. Raw materials are scarcer than we thought. Why are they disappearing? And they want to deal with these risks. And more importantly, their investors want them to. They want the investors want to know if we invest in this company, how do you deal with not just market risks, but all these environmental risks that are coming along? So there's there is this rethink going on in business and this interest in more sustainable practices. Unfortunately, once again, we're sticking our toe in the water of sustainability, mm-hmm. not jumping in. And we need to have a little more urgency and more realization that these opportunities, particularly in the private sector and the market, actually can be economically profitable for businesses. The businesses mm-hmm. that actually become more sustainable can reduce their costs, too. And the investors will put more money into them. So it's starting to be this movement. The problem is, of course, that we still don't see it as being a full-fledged commitment. And it's almost like we're, you're at a doorway here and you're sort of saying, after you, after you, who's going <laughs> to go through yeah. door and go through? That's a big, big deal. But we're starting to see some progress. Unfortunately, though, we have to recognize there are business interests that have a big stake in the status quo in mm, keeping mm-hmm. the economy brown for polluting and not dealing with the costs of pollution. And what they fear is the increased costs to them of a change. And there will be a cost. We can't sugarcoat it. We can't say, okay, the transition to being a greener business is going to be free. It's not. It's mm-hmm. going to cost you. But if you do it correctly, you can also make more money than it actually costs you. 
And there will be some losers as well. And those ones that are going to see their industries decline, they're going to fight back and they are fighting back and they're trying to mm-hmm. pull back the tide, so to speak, which is an analogy for what we're doing <laughs> with the coastal defenses. But, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, the point I'm trying to make is that we're at this critical crossroads where we have the biosphere stewards in industry are starting to realize there is a possibility of change that is for the good and for them also very helpful for their bottom line. But we have the biosphere exploiters that Mm -hmm. have a very powerful interest group and still hold sway, unfortunately, on many of our business and policy decisions. Well, and I think that you said that almost 50% of GDP is based on nature, which I think is an interesting place to start for many of the businesses and government, Mm -hmm. because it appears that nobody, and I'm using the air quotes, wants to do anything because of politics or, Mm -hmm. you know, fear of getting blasted by whatever the gas and oil industry or not getting funded or they see it as a two-sided issue when it's really just a human issue, right? But we end up in these very exclusive places against each other, if you Mm -hmm. will. And so I think if you sometimes can start talking financially, and so tell me about, I know, so in the book, it sort of talks about, and I love how you think about markets, institutions, and governance, like Mm -hmm. how we have to think differently about them. But you've really built the book on five principles. And they're all fabulous, but I'd love to start with sort of the underpricing of nature. Mm-hmm. And I read, I'm sure you're aware as an economist of Mark Carney, <laughs> right, who wrote Values. Mm-hmm. And I think he has an example in the book, and I'm, I'm not saying this is his original idea, but why do we value Amazon more than the Amazon jungle? Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was sort of a good way to start conversations with people because it, everything can be so abstract. Mm-hmm. But in that example, I think we understand why Amazon, the corporation, is valued a certain way because we're used to valuing businesses. But the rainforest, somebody buys the land, right, to cut down trees to, I don't know, graze cattle, let's just say. I purchased the land. I can do whatever I want with it at that point. Mm -hmm. And right there is where we need to start people changing minds, right? Not even that you can do whatever you want with it, because I guess maybe we could say, you know, you can, you've bought it, but but we need to price in these externalities of what you're going to do with that land. So do you have an example like that? Like, how would we start saying to that individual who wants to cut down all the trees and graze it for cattle? What do we say to that person? Like, not you own the land, but now we have to put a price on that, what you're about to do to it. Well, it, it, the first place you look at, and this unfortunately is true over most of remaining natural forests, it's like who gets the land in the first place? Most of, mm, great uh, point. Most, of, most of the environment, except for the international oceans, are owned by somebody. Mm. And usually mm-hmm. the tropical forests are ostensibly owned by the governments that have them. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, most of our governments still view nature in the same way that we've viewed it for 10,000 years. It's something out there that Mm -hmm. is not valuable to us unless we do something to it to bring it within our economic system. So then what would we do? Well, okay, the peatlands and the forests out there are not valuable unless, of course, we lease some of the land for mining. 
because oil is valuable and mm-hmm. fossil fuels and gold is valuable. We don't lease the land. We don't treat the tropical forest in situ as valuable unless it's converted to palm oil or soybean mm-hmm. or ranching. So right away, there's that mindset that says nature out there is not valuable to us. Mm-hmm unless we convert it. Equally, we mm-hmm. go a step further and we say, okay, we want to encourage these commercial activities because they generate money that we can use for government taxes, for revenues, for exports, for jobs, all these things. And so we actually subsidize the activities. We give away leases for free or we give credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we give the land. In many tropical countries, and particularly Latin America, there has been this longstanding thing is that if you convert the land, it's yours. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then on top of that, it's now valuable land. We'll give you credit for having it in production. And we'll give mm-hmm. you credit. So this goes on and on. And then we give credit for you. You can get loans at lower interest rates because you're doing something productive for our economy. This is the way Mm. our system works today. And it's not just in tropical countries. We still have this system here in the United States. For example, we're still subsidizing fossil fuel production and exploration at tens of billions of dollars in the United States. And we don't price carbon. In the United States, we do that at the state level, but not at the federal level. Now, there's a lot of political reasons why this carries on, but it's the mindset. It's not taking into account all the damages that the burning of fossil fuel do from climate change to health and from pollution, health consequences of pollution, and also congestion costs and so on, not to mention lost revenues for all this uh, to the government. All these things are real costs to our people and our economy, yet we carry on with that. And you know that may have made sense in the world where nature was so abundant mm-hmm. and economies were so small, and it seemed that we could uh, absorb those costs without any difficulty. The world's not like that anymore. There's 7 billion people on the planet. There are all these economies that are developing, producing, polluting, and the damage to nature has reached such a scale and has happened at such a speed that we need to rethink it. That's where collective action comes in. And we're seeing some progress on that since the Paris Agreement with climate change. We know, for example, with climate change, what we have to do Mm -hmm. as a globe. It's trying to convince countries to do that and get there. And some countries are doing it or trying to move in that direction. Some very important economies are trying to do it. And I'm encouraged by every step that we take, whether it's California suddenly saying, okay, we're going to phase out sales of gasoline fuel mm-hmm. by 2035. We're just going mm-hmm. to do it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Or the recent bill that went through Congress and was signed by Biden mm-hmm. that we're going to put in some incentives. But for me personally, it's not enough until we start to take seriously the change what we need in markets, institutions, and so forth. Last thing I'll say, going back to your tropical forest example, it's a very interesting thing that sometimes some of the most unexpected countries have made some important changes that could be good roadmaps for other countries. One of the things I talk about in my book, based on a study that was published by myself and some co-authors in Nature, is that two developing countries with tropical forests 
Costa Rica and Colombia have engaged in something, a policy that's called the tropical carbon tax, which has not up to now received a lot of attention. Costa Rica adopted this policy way back in 1997. Colombia has adopted it in 2016. And what this policy involves is putting a tax on fossil fuels, certain fossil fuels, particularly imports into these poorer countries and using some of the revenue to mm-hmm. invest in nature-based solutions, which are solutions to restore or conserve ecosystems in their mm-hmm. economy, mainly tropical mm-hmm. forest systems, but also wetlands and so forth. And in the case of Costa Rica, at least 40% of the communities affected are the poorest communities in rural areas. So it also adds to another principle, which I suggest, which is inclusivity. Mm-hmm. So. Mm -hmm. Not just promoting sustainability, it's also promoting inclusivity. So that's a win-win policy. And other countries are starting to get interested in this idea. I'd like to see more and more tropical countries do it and also show Mm -hmm. that why can't we do that in the richer countries too? Yeah. Why not think of it? Nature-based solutions are really cost-effective ways of protecting nature and also reducing carbon. We should be seeing more of that. And also that gets to the other problem. It's the underpricing of nature that's a major problem, but it's the underfunding of nature that is also a problem. Mm. We have to, much of my book is devoted to innovative ways in which we can boost our funding of Mm -hmm. protecting and restoring nature, which is important. It's easy to come up with things we have to do. We need to restore and conserve peatlands. We need to protect our coasts. We need to save water. We need to uh, invest in watersheds and and protect those. There's tons of things we need to do. How do we fund that? Mm -hmm. How do we go forward funding it? What we've done so far is we've left it to governments to Mm. Governments around the world are putting money into doing this, and poor countries are asking rich countries to give them money to help doing these things because mm-hmm. they benefit everyone in the world. And that's correct. The problem is, is that how much we need to do is in $900 billion, trillion, maybe a trillion, maybe almost $2 trillion is what we need going forward. At the moment, we're spending only $100 billion. And because there's so many competing uses of government revenue, it's hard for governments to keep raising more money. So we have to think creative ways of doing it. But more importantly, we have to get the private sector involved. The business is not good enough just for governments to do these things. Businesses have to get involved. And that's where we get into green financing, green investment, public-private partnerships. And businesses just recognizing we got to protect the environment as well. It's fundamental to our business. You're speaking our language, <laughs> Monica and I was talking <laughs> almost daily, nature-based solutions. That's why we created the podcast with our wonderful producer, Katrina. And I think what's really interesting, there's so much you just said, but you talk a lot about protecting the watershed. Do you think water is going to be, I mean, we already know water is a problem. There's droughts, there's rising waters. I live on the East Coast in the New York area, and we're always seeing so much more flooding. So do you see that water is going to be a really big component of what we need to really hone in on and really kind of study how do we ramp up and fix or heal or what are you seeing? Oh, absolutely. And it follows the same principles. In fact, the book I wrote before this, published by Yale University Press, is called The Water Paradox, mm-hmm. uh, How to Manage the Global Crisis in Water. And basically, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. Underpricing of water 
has been a hallmark of our economies. And we've, again, assumed that governments and public utilities will provide water to us, whether we're a business or whether we're a household. And we haven't thought much about as the source of that water gets more scarce relative to all the demands we're making to it, as it gets more polluted, how do we take into account that scarcity? Now, if you were talking about a good that was produced in our economy, let's say mm-hmm. a product that you could buy on Amazon, going back to the, <laughs> the Amazon versus Amazon, supposing you want to buy a pair of shoes on Amazon. Well, if there's not enough shoes to meet all the demand, the price of those shoes would go up. Mm-hmm. We don't see that. We don't see, first of all, water markets very well developed in many parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Even where they are, there are prices for water. The prices for water only reflect the last delivered amount of water, how, what mm-hmm. it costs to get the water from the utility to the consumer. Mm-hmm. It doesn't reflect the growing scarcity that's out there and the amount of investment that we go into dams, reservoirs, pipes, everything else that we do to bring that water, much less the source of the water in the ecosystems. And I'm afraid we have to think more carefully about this because otherwise we just go on wasting water. Now, I live in Fort Collins, Colorado, and one of the interesting things that's happened recently where I live is that they have finally made it legal to use gray water in households where gray water is like the water from your dish water mm-hmm. and from showers. So it's not, of course, the sewage water, but it is water that we routinely just dump out into the same system as our sewer, sewer water. But you can now, if you want, recycle that water in your house. And that, mm-hmm. that simple change could impact quite a lot on water use is you could make households more self-sufficient and recycling. But unfortunately, we have tons and tons of regulations that stop us from doing that. In parts of the U.S. and parts of the world, there's only one use for water, which is agriculture. You either use water or you give it to another farmer to use it or sell it to that farmer. You cannot have water sold from farming use to, let's say, city use. So there is no way of doing that transaction. We have to change that and also facilitate the buying and selling of water, both short term and long term. It's starting to happen here in the West, and we're starting to see, as a result, more conservation taken on by various cities. But it's getting too late. We still are reacting to water crises by bans after the fact, mm-hmm. by saying, okay, we don't have enough water in the Colorado River, so Arizona mm-hmm. farmers aren't going to get water this year, and neither are farmers in the southern part of California, including the Central Valley. That's quite frightening because the Central Valley mm-hmm. in California – is produces a lot of food and other agriculture products for our economy. We have to think more proactively rather than reactively, which is how we're responding to water crises and unfortunately to many others. Well, and I think that's an interesting segue into another principle, which is accepting absolute limits. And you're right. We just expect to turn on the tap and there's the water. I mean, we are so privileged in the majority of the country, but there's many people that don't have access like that. But in sort of a U.S. situation, we just assume we're going to turn it on. Now, we've heard and there are challenges now with sort of the water itself, like does it need to be filtered or lead and all these questions that are an infrastructure issue. But I think you're right. Arizona is a great example. There's been a lot of reporting lately on 
they just sort of gave away their water to be farmed by overseas countries yeah. without real pay. And you kind of wonder, how do these things happen on a government or business level? And I think you sort of, nobody's valuing it. So talk a little bit about absolute limits and we can stay on water if you have a different example you want to use, because I, I'm sort of fascinated by that, because I think in the West, we are not used to having limits. Mm-hmm. Right? No, we don't want to right. be told no. Yeah. So <laughs> I'd love to figure out how do we move people's brains? You're absolutely right, Monica. I mean, this is something that I talk a little bit about early on in the book, is that our conception of nature and the environment and everything it does for us, whether it's water or trees or fossil fuels, whatever. We treat it as a frontier. We treat it as an unlimited frontier. And our view of our economy is that it's a circular system that's got markets and it's got consumers and producers on our markets make sure our consumers and producers buy and sell products and allocate labor and capital and all that, which is true. It does. But we treat the rest of the outside of us, the nature outside the economy is a, this unlimited frontier. So it's an unlimited source of anything that comes into it, whether it's water, trees or fossil fuels. And it's a limited sink for our waste. And so as our economy mm-hmm. grows and expands, we basically assume that there's still an unlimited frontier to exploit. Now, in our Western United States, it is legitimately a frontier economy it was established that way in order to settle it in a very big period of settlement from the mid 19th century to the mid 20th century and continuing on into the 21st century. So it still has mm-hmm. a frontier economy type ethos to it. Mm-hmm. Water in particular in that way, but so many other things. But we've now reached the point where our cities and our industries in the West are growing so much faster than agriculture. But mm-hmm. yet, 70-80% goes to agriculture in the West. That has to change, but it has to do it in a way that doesn't endanger our agricultural production, but at the same time, that changes. Now, to do that, the, one of the first things you have to do is recognize there's an absolute limit to how much water is out there in the West. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. semi-arid and arid region. It doesn't have a whole lot of water. So if we start from the premise that water is limited mm-hmm. and we design our economic institutions, governments, and markets in order to address that limit or to work within that limit, then that's how we can proceed. Another example is with climate change. Like I said, we know what the limit is. We want to limit global emissions of greenhouse gases to keep us within 1.5 degree, if possible, hopefully two. I think we've missed that boat. I think we've sort of missed the 1.5. Yeah, Yeah, so we're going to try desperately to stay within two degrees Celsius warming on average across the world, which means some regions are still going to get hotter. We know the limit. We know what that means in terms of how much we have to reduce our net carbon emissions. So we know that limit, at least with climate change, what we have to do is accept that limit and work with it Mm -hmm. and read, okay, what is it individual countries have to do? What do we need to do collectively as government? Now, the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement 
people had that for the first time, a collective understanding, this is what we need to do to stay within two degree warming. We now have to make sure we carry that out and everyone commits to that and that it becomes an important agenda. And then the same thing with habitats and nature. Where are the limits with biodiversity and land use change? With our oceans and coasts, how much plastic What's the limit on the plastic pollution we're going to tolerate? We do have to do this. Now, what's interesting is that we do this all the time with very smaller scale pollution and environmental problems. So if, for example, we want to, say, limit how much arsenic is produced, we say, okay, we got to limit arsenic or how much lead is produced in products or even a, we, we mm-hmm. say, okay, this is how much to keep health our economy can still run and keep our health effects down to limit the damage to people and to nature. We set a limit and then we say, okay, how do we achieve this limit? Well, we can regulate, we can ban, we can tax, we can do all these things. Why not do that with everything that we know is going to risk our global environment? Mm -hmm. But we're not there yet. Mentality rise. That's the problem. Right. And in the California law of banning, yeah. No new, is it no new production or no new, no yes. new gas powered can be sold? Is that it in the state? Is that what they're in? By, right. by 2030, and, I think. 2030. Did I hear that? Did I hear that there are other states that have trigger laws, which God forbid we're using on other issues? <laughs> but I heard like maybe Massachusetts, like some of the states have like an immediate, when California does something like that. Massachusetts, like, Washington, falls right in line. D.C.? No, 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 Washington State. Washington ah. State has something similar. I don't know if it's a trigger law, but I think mm-hmm. they are going to adopt something similar. That's the latest I've heard. It, yeah, that's a, just, Sometimes that's that stuff can just snowball sure. into an actual, because the car manufacturers at that point, if you get 17 states on board, or even California and a couple yeah. other big ones, it doesn't make sense for them to build anything else. Now, a lot of the manufacturers have already made great commitments to going all electric. But I think as a consumer, when you hear a big state like that, it wakes you up quite a bit more because you're like, oh, well, if I'm buying a gas powered car after 35, <sighs> I mean, I know I'm part of the problem already, but like then I'm really part of the problem. So it's like, I'm always fascinated. How do we get consumers to change their mindset? Another stat I read, and I'm a little all over the place on this question, but is that if we individuals all stopped doing all the things that are quote bad, it would only really help the environment by I think like 22% or something like that. Like we would only get to 22% of the goals. So it really is private, Mm -hmm. huge institutions, governments and businesses that really, really need to do it. But we have power. We have agency Mm -hmm. to help make those changes or demand those changes. What other things are you seeing that are positive like that, like the gas ban that's happening across the country that you think is realistic that could, I'll use the word snowball. Let me go back to the California example. One of the things I really like about it isn't just this general rule, but the enforcement mechanism that they've included. And I may not get the right, but basically, if the car companies and retailers don't comply with this rule, mm-hmm. they're going to be charged a tax of $20,000 ah. per vehicle. Oh, and that's wow. what we need. This is where it's not good enough just to say, stop this, yep. regulate this. But you've got to give both producers and consumers an incentive mm-hmm. to do this. 
The other thing I like is that the California law complements the incentives that the Biden administration has just put through in Congress in this bill. Mm-hmm. Because one of the hallmarks of this bill is that it's providing incentives for particularly poorer households to buy electric vehicles. Well, mm-hmm. that's not in the California law, but equally, the federal law doesn't have this kind of mandatory thing. So the two work really well together. And I think that if they both hold, and who knows, we could have a change in the federal administration that overturns everything, and we could have a change even in California mm-hmm. that overturns everything. But at least for now, people are starting to see that this is the right path where we have to go. So I think both are compliments and they work together. Other things, well, one of the problems in this country is that we have such a deadlock when it comes to global policy. Mm-hmm. And I think when it comes to green issues, the American people, despite the deadlock, the vast majority, like myself, are fed up with greenwash from business mm-hmm. and politicians. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening is that the power is happening at the local and state level which is maybe where it should, and even regional levels. Mm-hmm. Groups of like-minded states, like in the Northeast, there's a group of states that are clubbing together to put together regional climate policies and incentives across states, which is great because they're smaller states. Together, collectively, they're quite powerful. We're seeing, like I mentioned, the use of gray water. Mm-hmm. We also have locally a plastics ban. All the stores here now have to get rid of plastic mm-hmm. and, and paper and they can charge for paper, but it's no longer plastic. That's the sort of thing that we're starting to see at local levels. Of course, various states have got carbon taxes, carbon pricing, Mm -hmm. California is one of them and others. So there are things that are happening at the subnational level that's more encouraging than at the national level. My big concern is that there isn't enough attention paid to what is the collective effect of these things. First, mm. no, we need to know how much, if California does this joined by Washington and Massachusetts, they bring in this car rule, how will it affect things? We need more understanding of that. And let's assume that nothing happens at the national level. Is that good enough Is it, or do we need more? We need more studies of that because that's just the system we live in. And we need more information to ordinary consumers and voters to understand what's going on so they can make the right choice, both whether in local re- referenda on specific things like plastics, pollution bans mm-hmm. and that stuff, or to vote for the right congressperson or state senator or so forth. What's their green policy? If we want change, it has to come from us and to use our democratic and our market votes, our dollar, mm-hmm. to make yeah. change. What we purchase matters. And that's starting to happen. Then, of course, the other area that we've talked about earlier is the finance end, is that mm-hmm. investors need to make their presence fill. And many of us are shareholders as well. Mutual funds with a lot of investments in them. And so we need to make our sentiments felt and let investors and financial institutions know that it matters. That's where we have to go. I'm glad that you said local and regional really matter because I think that's where the groundswell becomes. That's where we get the action happening to get the, you know, at least the notifications of why, why it matters to us in our local communities and why. And, and also, I think that also helps teach younger people, the younger generation. If they're not learning it in school, they can learn it from their local communities of why it matters to us and why we have to take a real deep look into 
what we're buying, when we're buying and how we're buying. And uh, it all makes a huge difference. Yeah, I think so. And also, obviously, I'm a university professor. I interact with young people all the time. And the thing I'm so concerned about is that, obviously, I want to avoid leaving them a planet that is in worse Mm -hmm. shape than we got it. But more importantly, I'm concerned that they need to be very active. Mm. It's their world that we're fighting over. And their world, they want to feel involved, but they also Mm. want to make sure that they're able to have a difference. Mm. When they get involved locally and regionally, they can see the difference and they can feel good about the change. When we talk about global problems and everything that's gone wrong, it can really depress them and make them feel, Mm -hmm. why should I bother? I'll just go back on TikTok and talk with my friends, you know, and stuff. (laughs) But, but, uh, I mean, that's why in this book, I have tried not to talk so much about the problem, although I obviously Mm -hmm. have to explain the problem, why it's so urgent, Mm -hmm. why we need to do something quickly. But most of the book is about what can we do? And although I obviously dealing mainly with policies at the national, regional, or even global level, and the actions we can do by governments and business and individuals, I'm hoping that also people who read this will understand that these are things that can be more easily done at the local level and state level that they live in. And it can. And that's often where the most progress is being made right now. And it will make a difference. I'll make a difference immediately in their local area. But if enough places do it, then we'll start to see an overall impact that's positive. No, definitely. And one of the things that, well, there's a bunch of stuff that I would love to dig into, and I don't know how much time we have, but one of the things that I really liked in the book was you were comparing, and I think it's maybe with the World Economic Forum, degree of freedom. Yes. Which we can use the word democracy if we want, and greenness. And you have a chart, it's called a freedom score. It's like a XY axis, and you've got a freedom score and you've got a green score. Can you talk a little bit about that? You did the G20s, I think, or 19 members of the G20. I will have to correct you. Unfortunately, this little piece of my talk I put in after my book was published. So it's not actually Ah. in the book. The reason I put it in was, as you mentioned, my book was launched in March 2022, and this was one of my book launch talks. And of course, what was on everyone's mind was the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, Mm -hmm. which was a Mm -hmm. clear undemocratic move, and particularly a move where you have a state that is run by a very autocratic leader with uh, support by oligarchs, all who make lots of money out of fossil fuels, and attacking a country that is moving more Western and more democratic, and to bring it under control. And of course, a lot of people were asking, well, is green now a luxury? Do we have to get back to this issue of energy security, national security, and a democracy versus, you know, Cold War 2.0, where it's, you mm-hmm, know, democratic mm-hmm. Western states versus autocratic entities, whether it's Russia or possibly China and maybe others. And so that's why I put that piece in my talk. And what I wanted to remind people is that when you look at the recent evidence, whether it's the recent green stimulus spending during COVID-19, whether mm-hmm. it's tackling the problem of underpricing, or whether you're talking about the dependency of economies on fossil fuel. There's a clear correlation between countries that have been more green, that they've adopted greener stimulus policies, or they have reduced their underpricing, or they are less dependent on fossil fuels. 
those countries that are more green tend to be more democratic. They tend to be freer. Mm-hmm. And so I used the Freedom mm-hmm. House Index of Freedom and compared it against the greenness of economies. And particularly for the 19 countries that make up the G20, the 20th countries, European Union, and I could have put them on the graph and they would also show the same thing. You have this clear trend that the countries that are more free, more democratic, have more democratic institutions, generally have been more green in recent years mm-hmm. than the countries that are autocratic, even within these 20 largest economies of the world. But that's important. Mm-hmm. These 20 economies account for 80 percent of the GDP and yeah. 75 or 85% of greenhouse gas emissions and so on. And of course, they're the most populous countries of the world too. So what happens there is important and they set the pace for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So it's becoming clear moving forward. And that's some of the work that I, I'd like to do is that there's a clear coalition, just like if we are thinking about parts of the world that are democratic needing to help each other, well, greenness is part of that. They're also the countries that have a stake in green, uh, have shown that they have an interest in stake in greenness. And that's because they're democratic, I think, because their populations want to be greener. And many of their populations, particularly in these poorer countries that are democratic, realize that loss of the environment affects their livelihoods more directly than it does in our mm-hmm. richer countries. And so I think moving forward, we're going to see more of interest in reviving and recognizing that economies that are going to face threats to their democracies are facing threats to their green transition. If they're not careful, they have to work together to collectively promote a green transition, but at the same time, protect their democracy. They go hand in hand. I love that. So, I was going to say, I love that because that's what we talk about, right? It's all about nature. It's all about hope and growth yeah. and expansion. So like yeah. that, what you just said about becoming more, you know, the green economy is like, that is what it's all about. How do we then come together as more democratic yeah. to make sure we're putting things in place to have more hope, to have more growth and expansion and versus this doom and gloom, which is so much sitting over so many of us right now. Yes, I agree. And also it's very straightforward, I think, to make green economies more inclusive. I mean, mm-hmm. by definition, many of the things you do that green economy make people who are poor better off. And if not, you can mm-hmm. find things to make it more inclusive. And that's got to be an important goal. That's why I put that as my fifth goal mm-hmm. uh, is making it more inclusive. And that's easier to do. I mean, what we're seeing, evidence shows by many economists, particularly Thomas Piketty and many others, have shown that in the same 50 years that we've seen environmental impacts just accelerate, we've seen worsening global inequality, whether you use income or wealth as your measure, both within Mm -hmm. countries and between countries, but really within countries, we're seeing growing gaps being rich before. And Mm -hmm. more wealth is concentrated in the hands of fewer people, or there's a a bigger gap between the very rich and the very poor. And so our economy is not delivering also in terms of lifting people out of poverty or reducing this disparity in wealth and income. It's making it worse. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. many of the people who have wealth are going to maybe try and protect their interests if if we're not careful. So it is a tough Mm -hmm. thing we're seeing. It's a real, I think, both these issues. That segment that I put in my talk, I labeled the color of democracy is green. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's, I think, the bottom line. Yeah, no, I love that, that the sustainability in the corporations, the government and financial performance Mm -hmm. needs to be correlated, just like you're saying that, you know, 
democracy or freedom is correlated with taking care of nature and having greenness. As we sort of wrap up here, is there anything, I mean, there, I could probably talk to you (laughs) for another hour. Um, I mean, this has been so interesting. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share or something we didn't touch on that you feel like is very important? I think we've covered pretty much all the ground. Uh, (laughs) Fantastic. Ranging. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. How can we support you? Do you have uh, social accounts or anything that we can promote in our show notes or anything like that? Actually, I don't have a social account for many reasons. Totally understand. (laughs) Uh, Believe me, this is writing on this stuff has not been costless for me personally. So it's really promoting the book would be right. helpful. And right. also I still have my personal website, which people are welcome to go through www.edwardbbarbier.com or just Google me at Colorado State University and people will be able to find my stuff. And can people take your classes? Like I, if I was in the area, I would love to like sit in and I mean, are you teaching based on this book? And or do you have a book club that people can join or follow along? Because I just think it's such important mm-hmm. content. Uh, I teach both undergraduates and graduates. I teach generally at a high level class. My wife, who's also an environmental economist and also works on the green issues, wow. teaches a course that is open to uh, those without any economics teaching it. Unfortunately, it's for CSU students. So mm-hmm. you'd have to be a right. Colorado State student to take it. There are also courses that our department is putting online. Um, mm-hmm. oh, great. Interested, including this course. But no, that's pretty much other than public lectures and podcasts. I have no book club per se. Uh, <laughs> but people find me. I make my material available through my website. And then people find me through books and Think so. Fantastic. You. Yeah. You're putting out your green beacon. Yes. Put up green my green beacon, beacon of hope. Yeah. Yeah. I do. <laughs> beacon of hope. Thank you, Ed. We really, really appreciate you taking so much time with us today to really dive into your work, which is so important and impactful. And we really yeah. appreciate your time. And we'll put a link to the book in the show notes. It's super important. We want everybody to go buy it. It's super interesting and so important for us to understand this because if we don't understand it, then we can't ask for the change that we want. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So thank you, Ed, yeah. so much. Thank you, guys. Wow. I mean, that was such a fascinating and full conversation. I'm not even sure where to start. I'm with you. I really feel like Ed is one of those guests we need to follow up with. There were so many questions and ideas I wanted to hear his opinion on, including whether he's ever gotten any pushback about valuing nature in economic terms. We didn't really have time to get into that, but I think it's a compelling question. I would say before our conversation with Ed, I could have argued either way. Like nature is so intrinsically good. How could we ever talk about it economically? But now I'm kind of bought in. Like I can't convince a fossil fuel executive with my feelings, however much I might want to. What we can all do is demonstrate that unsustainable practices hurt bottom lines and petition for cutting subsidies or imposing taxes on harmful practices. Yeah, this whole conversation made me think about the concept we've explored many times on the podcast, which is long-term versus short-term thinking. So I think over the long haul, so many businesses and governments are losing revenue as a result of climate or I should say environmental damage, but there's a lack of motivation to make big changes because of short-term profits and upfront costs to make those changes. Absolutely. It's so easy to maintain the status quo, but we're just not in that position to do that anymore. No, we're definitely not. You know, it's definitely promising to see the strides that are being made on the national level with the Inflation Reduction Act and with the electric vehicle law coming out of California, but there's much more work to be done. 
Also, after this conversation with Ed about water, I want to point briefly to the really harrowing situation in Jackson, Mississippi. The city literally doesn't have water. This is a major American city with infrastructure so broken that residents don't have water for basic things like flushing toilets and fighting fires. And I believe the root of all this is major flooding. So my point is that these issues are urgent and curbing environmental impact is something we really need to push for right now. Yes, the situation in Jackson is so devastating, but we've included some resources in our show notes. So please check those out while you're listening. And yes, to your point about advocating for change, I think starting at the local level makes sense. At least for me, it feels like so much more actionable because we all have direct access to our city council members. We can take steps in all of our own backyards. Yeah, it was especially reassuring to talk about the importance of local action with Ed because he's someone whose research is all about the global impact. Yes. So pick up a copy of Ed's book today, Economics for a Fragile Planet, in our show notes, and take some of the ideas to your next city council meeting. You never know what might happen. Great idea, Monica. Talk to you later. Bye, Jennifer. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the Biophilic Movement. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Carbon Connection, a rebroadcast of the Biophilic Solutions podcast. We want to thank Monica Olson and Jennifer Walsh for letting us share this episode with you. To view all of the shows in the Carbon Almanac podcast network, visit thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcast to see the latest episode of each show. One of the podcasts in the network is for kids age 6 through 10, but adults like this podcast too. Check out Generation Carbon to discover how kids and adults can learn from experts and each other while having a whole lot of fun.